Father, we are thankful as always to be in your word, to be here this morning gathered together for that purpose. Father, as I am able to watch other churches on television or to see them in person, I'm always reminded of just how blessed we are to have a church, Father, that puts your word first and preaches it unapologetically. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for the desire for that. Father, as we go into the Word, we do want to remember some folks who have needs that we want to raise before you. For Bobby, Lord, we know his life has taken a sudden turn, that his injury, Father, is more than just a painful episode. It's also, perhaps, Father, a change in his life for other reasons. We ask, Lord, that even as he recovers, that that recovery would be quick, that it would go well without pain, Father. And then, Father, depending on how it turns out, we ask your will would be shown to Bobby that he may understand the purpose in this event and know how to respond according to your will and that you would comfort him in all those changes. And Father, from Musa Tespar, I thank you, Lord, that he was delivered here safely, that his week, Father, went so well that he was blessed with good teaching and opportunity to share in the experience of other men like himself who minister in the police forces around the world. I thank you, Father, that uh, he has been able to make this trip to see another part of the world. And I pray, Father, that what he's learned will go back with him now to Kenya and be put to great work for the benefit of the men and women he ministers to there, that his family, Father, would continue to be protected in his absence and that they would look forward expectantly with joy to his return. And when he does return safely, Father, I pray that he would be met by many who would praise him and praise you for the opportunity he had. And Lord, I thank you in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, join me in Luke chapter 2, where we left off now about two weeks ago, I guess. Looking at about verse 34. And remember last week we were in the temple with Mary and Joseph. They had just presented the infant Christ before the Lord in the temple, as was the practice under the law. And then as they were in the temple, they ran into this man named Simeon, who we were told had been waiting his whole life to see a promise fulfilled, a promise from God that he would one day see the Messiah in person. And now that he had his wish granted, he's held the child, he's thanked God for this opportunity to see the Messiah. And that's where we pick up today. We hear this man, Simeon, pronouncing a prophetic blessing on the family in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And as we said at the beginning, Simeon now, having rejoiced over the presence of Christ in the temple and in his own presence, he's holding the child, and then he says this prophetic blessing. And he's giving, not just us, the readers, but I would argue also Mary and Joseph themselves, added insight into the nature of this child that they've been given, into their son and into his mission on this earth. He gives three interesting details. I want to use a little time to look at each one. He gives three interesting details about their son and about his ministry. First, they say, Jesus, 
has been appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Jesus, we know from other scripture, is both Israel's rock, their rock of salvation, but he's also going to be the stumbling block, a stumbling block spoken about by the prophets. Now, on its face, on its face, this statement is pretty easy to understand, right? We know instinctively, and I've said this before, the world can be divided into two kinds of people. So, what Simeon is saying about Jesus simply reflects the fact that the world can be divided on the basis of what they believe. Either they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that faith in Him alone saves, that there is no other name by which man may be saved, or they don't. Or they believe instead that He's a myth, or He's a fraud, or He was merely a good teacher, or maybe they don't give Him any thought at all. So that, that dividing line that Christ provides is clearly in view when Simeon says, he will be the one to appoint, or appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. The fall for those who don't believe, the rise for those who do. That's pretty easy. But there's actually another aspect of this statement that's equally important and a little more difficult to explain. The nation of Israel as a whole is going to experience both sides of this prophetic blessing. On the one hand, they are going to fall against the stumbling block that is Christ. But on the other hand, the entire nation will also rise on their rock of salvation. Look at Isaiah 28.16 and it says this, Isaiah 28.16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a testing stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. In Zion, in Jerusalem, Isaiah says, Christ will be this foundation stone on which the salvation for the nation of Israel will be based. But that same prophet also says this in 8.13. He says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and He shall be your fear, and He shall be your dread. Then He shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. This same prophet, speaking about this same person, the Messiah, says to the same group of people, the nation of Israel, that they will stumble over him, that he will be a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap. That in other words, because they don't believe in him, he will be their downfall as a nation. So how is it that both aspects of this Messiah can be true for the same group of people? How is it that he can both be their rock on which the salvation of the nation will be based, and secondly, he will be a stumbling block on which the nation will fall? Well, of course, it has to do with his first and his second coming. In his first encounter with, the, or in their first encounter with the Messiah, the nation of Israel does stumble over Christ. They stumble over him because they do not accept him for who he is. They are looking for someone different than him. They reject him. Most notably, they turn him over to be crucified. The nation as a whole declaring they do not believe in him. And so they turn him over to men who would put him to death. Now, in practical terms, it's simply they misunderstand him. I mean, if you really go back in that moment of time, you think about the crucifixion itself, the nation of Israel was looking for a king who would take them out of the oppression from the Roman Empire, that would free them, that would be a conquering king in the, in the manner and in the vision that they had for their Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah who would come in this way and die in this way. So in practical terms, they simply didn't accept him for who he was. But in spiritual terms, and this is really the point of the prophecy Simeon's giving, in spiritual terms, it is much more profound than simply men and women confused about who their Messiah should be. In 1 Peter 2.7, you hear this. This precious, 
precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone. In other words, he quotes from Isaiah. Then he says this, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumbled because they are disobedient to the Word. And to this doom they were also appointed. To this doom of stumbling they were appointed, Peter says. Peter quotes the Psalms and he adds that this nation of Israel stumbling over their Messiah occurred because they were disobedient to the Word, to the Scriptures in other words, and that disobedience to the Word was appointed to them. It was appointed that they would be disobedient. That they would reject the Messiah. That He would become a stumbling block out of necessity. Not out of chance. Not out of capricious decisions on the part of humans. But on God's appointed plan. That they would be appointed to this purpose. Paul gives us another piece to this puzzle in Romans 11. When he explains how the Jewish nation was appointed to reject their Messiah. Paul says in Romans 11:7, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it was written, God gave them a a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Both Paul and Peter are stating the same principle out of Scripture. That God is the one who ensured that the nation of Israel would reject their Messiah upon His first coming. By blinding them spiritually. By essentially allowing their sin nature to condemn themselves and not giving reprieve through the Holy Spirit. Not letting their eyes see. Why did He do this? Well, God explains, or Paul rather, explains this further as he goes further through the chapter of Romans. He says in Romans 11.11, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. A simple statement, but it's awful powerful. God is saying that He is fulfilling His promise to Abraham when He told Abraham that through Him all the nations of the world would be blessed by His seed, by Christ, in other words. Keep in mind, folks, that if the Jews had received their Messiah on His first coming... They would have called Him by name. They would have said, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the One who has been promised. You are the King who is going to lead the world and us with it. Had the Jews actually said that to the Messiah, to Christ on His first coming, He would not have been killed. There would have been no one crying out for His death. To the contrary, the very ones who cried out for His death would instead have been crying out for Him to be put on the throne of David. To be exalted. To be who He was supposed to be. And had they done that, He would have taken that seat. He would have been in the temple, potentially, and He would have then ruled the world from that place as the Messiah. Now, many theologians say, well, He still would have had to die because death on the cross was still a necessity in order to save men from His sin. But then their conclusion would be, having died, He would have been returned immediately to His throne. There would have been no intervening period between His first death and His return to rule. But that intervening period, the time we call the church age, has been created out of necessity because the Jews rejected Him. And having rejected Him, He does not return to rejection. He returns only upon their acceptance. So Christ now stays at the right hand of the Father waiting for the day when the Jewish nation will reverse their mistake and cry out on the Lord and ask Him to return to them. A day that Zechariah tells us about very clearly in his uh, 12th chapter of Zechariah. Once that occurs, then Jesus returns to rule. 
So had the Jews not rejected their Messiah, we would not have had this intervening period when, as Paul puts it, the age of the Gentiles now is available. For those like you and I to accept Christ, to have the opportunity God has made available in accordance with his promise to Abraham. Since ignoring the rest of the nations would have violated the Abrahamic covenant, God made it so that the nation of Israel would reject their their Messiah on his first coming. As Peter says, they were appointed to that doom. And in that rejection, the door now is open for a time for the nations of the world, the Gentile world, to receive their Messiah. That door is still open. Which is why the writer in the book of Hebrews says, as long as today is called today, receive your Messiah. In other words, as long as the door is still open, until that day closes, as long as it's open, don't lose the opportunity to confess Christ. That's the message of that phrase in Hebrews. And so the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish nation gives the rest of the world opportunity to believe. Until the day, as Zechariah 12:9 tells us, in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah 12, we hear the description of how in the last days of tribulation, the Lord will pour out His Spirit on the nation of Israel. And the natural result of having the Holy Spirit given to you is that you respond in faith. And the nation of Israel as a whole will do that in that last day. And look what it says. They look upon the one whom they've pierced and they mourn for Him. They instantly understand the mistakes of their fathers and generations past in the nation of Israel and they realize that Christ was the Messiah. That chapter goes on to describe how they call out on His name. And then in chapter 14 of Zechariah, two chapters later, we see Christ returning with all His holy ones, that's you and I, in response to the cry of the nation of Israel so that He can finally be the Messiah that He always was supposed to be for them. But He will not return until they call on His name. So returning to our passage in Luke, the prophecy of Simeon has... at at first, this detail of the fact that he is both the rise and the fall for the nation of Israel. A clear indication of his need to come twice. Then he goes on, though. His second detail is that this child will be a sign to be opposed. A sign to be opposed. And, of course, that he has become, no doubt. The world is opposed to Christ and to his church now every bit as much as they were to him personally when he walked the earth. We live in a very Christian culture. And because we live in a very Christian culture, we tend to think that Christianity is on the good side of things, that the world is generally Christian, that the Christians of the world are in the favored side of humanity. And that's simply not the case. Even in our own culture, we start to see changes afoot that indicate our, our faith is not favored. Our faith is not well supported. But men like Musa and others who live in other parts of the world can certainly attest to the fact that Christianity is not a favored view. That in many parts of the world you would be put to death for even attempting to prophetize your faith. More importantly, John 7, 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The fact that Christianity and therefore Christ Himself is hated is not simply because our ideas are different or because we're not the, the typical view for some culture. It's because the very fact of Christianity and what it teaches exposes men's evil. And men don't want to have their evil exposed. In that way, it is a sign to be opposed. You know, you've heard sometimes that the Word will convict, that its very nature is to convict you of sin if you sit under its teaching. It has a more prof- profound impact, however, in the life of an unbeliever 
In an unbeliever, it will either draw them to the Word such that they feel repentance and belief, or it will repel them. If you're an unbeliever and you sit under the teaching of the Word, you cannot stay in a neutral place. It won't allow it. You'll either be drawn toward the Word or you'll be pushed away. It's a shame that so many churches in our world today are filled with so many seats or or have people filling so many seats and yet many of those people are unbelievers and remain that way for many, many years even in those churches. That's a clear sign that the Word of God is not being applied properly. Because had the Word of God be spoken from the pulpit on a regular basis, they'd either come to faith out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit or they'd run out of the door on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But they can't sit neutrally under the Word of God. It hasn't, doesn't give you that option. So he will be assigned to be opposed, Mary and Joseph are told. Finally, Simeon says the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed by this child. Remember, one day, one day after the Messiah has ruled, and I'm not talking about his second coming now, I'm talking about at the very end of his messianic reign, at the end of the thousand year millennial, millennial kingdom, we're told in Revelation that When his kingdom is ended, a throne will appear and books will be opened. And all of those who have not placed their trust in Jesus will appear before that throne for judgment. You and I will not be there. This is a judgment solely for the unbeliever. And in that moment, the thoughts of every heart will be revealed from those books. God knowing everything that those men and women have done or even thought in their entire life. And that will be their own undoing. They essentially will convict themselves by their own testimony. And judgment will be sure. And that is part of the legacy or of the future for this child. Simeon inserted one detail there for Mary in passing, as we looked at those three phrases. He said that she would be pierced even to her soul. Well, no doubt Mary didn't understand Simeon's comment at the time, I'm sure, but he was telling Mary, of course, of her own anguish. Her own anguish in watching her son put to death that as Christ was being crucified and his side is pierced by a Roman soldier's sword, his mother would have looked on and no doubt feel that sword herself as if it was piercing her, as if it had been directed against her. And thus, that would fulfill Simeon's prophecy to her. Consider Simeon, as we've considered Simeon, let's look at the next character mentioned as well in that text. Just like Simeon, there's this widow who essentially lived in the temple who essentially was a resident in the temple. It says she'd been married only a short while. Her husband had died. She'd been widowed. And as a widow in that culture, she didn't have many options. We in this culture don't really appreciate that. But in their culture, and I would say uh, this may be very comparable to some extent to the culture that Kim and I saw when we were in Kenya. The culture that if a woman is completely without support, without her husband, without family, she's in a very destitute situation because there was not going to be a lot of corporate or Uh, governmental uh, welfare or any kind of support provided. She was going to be solely at the mercy of God. Now, she must have taken up residence in this house of the Lord and the temple itself, probably begging to some extent for her living, for subsistence in that place. And it says she's been here since seven years after she was married. We don't know when that started. We weren't told what age she was when she married. But if she's like most women in that culture, she probably married in her early teens. So if she's been maybe widowed since 20 or 21. Here she is at 84. It could have been at least 60 years or more that she's lived in this temple this way. 60 years. Essentially, 60 years of depending entirely on the Lord for her subsistence. She's also called a prophetess, a woman who's been given special insight by God. So by Luke's account, it would appear that 
she's been given the knowledge that this child she now sees in the temple is the Messiah, much as Simeon understood that. And it says she's going to spend the rest of her days telling everyone she can about who the Messiah is, about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. You notice that she only speaks this, this truth, though, to those who are looking for the redemption of Israel. It says of Jerusalem, but that implies the nation of Israel. In other words, her ministry is directed toward those who want to find him, those who are seeking him. In other words, the remnant of Israel, to a Jew who knew that there was a Messiah to come, that one would be necessary to save them of their sin, to those who are longing for his coming. And so Mary and Joseph's trip to this temple includes these two strange characters who testify to the nature of their own child and did so publicly for all who would want to hear in that temple from then onward. And then this family returns to Nazareth. Let's pick up again in chapter 2, verse 40. This child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Well, Luke gives us here the only record of Christ as a young boy in the Gospels. This statement he uses commonly about how Mary is treasuring all these things in his heart. This statement has led some scholars to conclude that it was probably Mary's first-hand witness and first-hand account that Luke's actually writing about, that, that Luke effectively interviewed Mary before her death and wrote these words as a function of what she remembered. That may be true, may not, but it's interesting nonetheless. We do need to remember who Luke's writing this gospel for at this point to understand why he includes this account, why he's the only one to include in an account, an account like this of Jesus. Remember, he's, re, he's writing essentially to Greek trained Christians, men like Theophilus, who he introduced the letter to originally. Remember the Greeks? They would have been very interested in any story that had as a part of the story this idea of God coming down and being with men. That was a very common feature of any Greek mythology. So that would have been a very interesting detail for them. They really would have wanted to understand how it is that God could come down into the culture and exist with them. But in their mythology, gods will always remain perfectly separate. There were the men and the women of the world, and then there were the gods. They would interact, but they were never mixed in any other sense. God never was not God. Men were never God. There was always a distinction being made. So the interplay between them was the interesting thing for the Greeks. What, what's happened in this story so far, though, under Luke's telling of it, though, makes clear that what we have is something different here. We have God who is also man. 
That's a completely new idea to a Greek and it would have been a very challenging one. How can you be both God and man? You're either one or the other, aren't you? And that's what the Greek trained mind would have been wrestling with here. I think Luke adds this passage about the experience with the mother and the father and the boy to address what would have been a natural question for any Greek. How is it that God would submit to parents, to human parents as a child? When the child is old enough to, to rationalize and to, and to talk, wouldn't he have immediately said, I'm God, you'll do what I say? That would have been a very interesting detail to the Greek. And so I think Luke is including all this additional detail to help satisfy their curiosity. He makes this extra effort to show how a man who's also God can live under parental authority and yet still answer to his Father in heaven. It's a, it's a strange dilemma, you'd have to agree. Well, he begins by observing that Jesus was growing strong as a boy and increasing in wisdom. This is a challenging statement all by itself because our first thought is to wonder why did Jesus need to grow strong in wisdom? What is it about growing strong in wisdom that's a part of the experience of God in men or made a man? Wasn't he able to already know everything since he was God? How, where is he growing from? Where is this new knowledge coming from? He's God. Well, doesn't he already know everything? The answer is yes and no. Though Jesus is God and therefore he has all knowledge, potentially, he voluntarily, Hebrews tells us, gave up some of that ability. Paul adds that as well in his letters. He talks frequently about how Jesus gave himself up or reduced himself, made himself lower than angels, is the way Hebrews puts it. In other words, he had the opportunity to be God and at the right hand of the Father know all things, but he voluntarily took a form that limited him. You know, one example I use often in my teaching is that the moment Christ became a man, a physical man, he could no longer be in two places at once. God, by his nature, is omnipresent in the form of the Father and in the form of the Spirit, but in the form of his Son... He is now in singular point in, in space at any given time. He's limited like you and I are. Now, his knowledge by the Holy Spirit can still be about, know about things on other sides of the world or know what's going on in your heart or in your mind, though you don't speak it. But in terms of his form, he has to be in one place. That will be the case as well in the Messianic kingdom. When he returns, he will still be bound by his physical nature. He'll sit in one place on the throne in Jerusalem and he, he can't be there and on the other side of the world at the same time though his thoughts might know what's going on by the power of the Holy Spirit. That limitation extends as well to his knowledge as a child. He is limited in the fact that he's inside a child's body to the things that a child's mind can understand at the pace and at the rate that a child can grow. Albeit, he is a good student. He learns probably faster than the average. He is still bound by that physical form he has chosen to take voluntarily. And his knowledge, his growth in knowledge spiritually, depends on the same Holy Spirit that ours does. When we talk about Christ taking a form that he could then understand what our experience is like, it's a true sense. That, that phrase is truly the case in all regards. He depended on his Father's Holy Spirit to give him spiritual knowledge just as you and I do today. He did, in fact, if you look through the Gospels quite often, particularly we'll look in Luke 4 later, you're going to see how Christ Himself had to be led into the desert and into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He had to be comforted in the time of temptation and trial by the Holy Spirit. Because of the form He took, He was limited and depended on the Holy Spirit for the power that He used to have automatically. We have that same experience. He really did share in that experience. 
Then Luke turns to an account of Mary and Joseph visiting the temple. And here's where we get into the interesting dichotomy, the interesting dilemma of obeying parents versus obeying the father and being God all at the same time. Jewish males were expected to make a trip to Jerusalem at least three times in the year if they didn't live there already. Those three times coincided with three feasts. The Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, if you were poor and you didn't have the opportunity to travel frequently to Jerusalem, at a minimum, you had to come for the Feast of Passover. That was your minimum duty in a year for a Jewish male. And typically, they would bring their wives in the family. And it's also the case that a Jewish son would attend with his father on occasion as a way to learn the traditions And especially as the son approached the age of 13, which in the Jewish law, under the Jewish tradition, that was the age of adulthood for a male. So if you were nearing the age of 13, you were definitely going to go with your father to the Passover so that you could begin to understand what was required of an adult male in Jewish culture. And that trip is apparently what's going on here for Christ. But this trip includes a new twist, one that probably was not common. Mary and Joseph lose the Savior of the world. They misplace, they misplace the Messiah. You know, I, I was pretty worried the day I lost my wallet, but can you imagine? Can you imagine losing the Messiah? You know, some people ask how this could actually have happened, right? How could any parent truly have left behind their child for a whole day? It almost seems too hard to believe, right? We certainly wouldn't do that today. Though we may wish we could at times, I know. But remember, the age in this time, there's some things different about their age and their circumstances than in our situation today. First of all, today you can't leave your child alone for any length of time, right? In any place, it seems, without taking a significant risk. The depravity of our time has made that the case. Now, they had evil in their day, too, but the fact remains that in that day, children had little to fear from strangers. I mean, even the thought that a stranger would take somebody else's child would have been a terribly nonsensical thought. I mean, it would have made no sense at all in that culture. You've got to feed him. You've got to care for him. You're in small, close-knit communities. A new child showing up unexpectedly is going to draw lots of interest and questions. There's just no practical way somebody in that culture could have done what we, take, what we see happening, unfortunately, today so often. So a parent would feel no problem at all letting their child run free. Remember, who were the shepherds? Quite often, the 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old boys were the shepherds in the field for nights on end with the, with the flock. They wouldn't necessarily come home but once every two or three days, depending on what they were doing with the flock. So having the child gone like that, that's not all that unusual. Secondly, in the culture of that day, men traveled with men, women with women, and the children could move between those two groups or be in their own groups with other children. It wasn't always clear where the children were going to go. So it's very conceivable that Mary thought the child was with Joseph and Joseph thought the child was with Mary because as a caravan moved, the men and the women stayed separate. And only as they arrive at a stopping point, the first night stop, in other words, and they set up a camp, only then would they start looking for their family. Where is the children? Where is everybody? It's time to eat. And that's apparently in this story when they discovered that Jesus was not with them. Now, it's going to be evening at that point. They can't start up and go right back to Jerusalem. It's a whole other day to get back there. So they're going to stay in camp where they are, sleep that night, get up the next morning and go back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine how little sleep they probably got that night? Or maybe I should say, can you imagine how little sleep Mary allowed Joseph to get that night? I'm not sure what the walk back the next day was like, but I'm sure it wasn't very pleasant either. Oh my goodness. And and just for the record, how many roses would Joseph have had to buy to make up for this one? It's like four million dozen, I think. For losing the Messiah, that's a big one. 
Okay, well, they arrive in Jerusalem by the end of the second day. Logically, if it took them one day to leave, it takes them one day to get back. They probably walked a little faster coming back, but still, probably a day. And then again, it's evening time. The cities shut up shop at night. They roll up the sidewalks, as we used to say in East Texas. There's nothing available for them to do when they get back at night except bed down again. So it takes to the third day before they're really in a position to go looking for Jesus. And that's why the phrase, on the third day they found him. It's not like it took them two days to figure out where he was once they got back. It's counting from the time they left Jerusalem all the way to coming back and then finding him on the third day. Some, somewhere along the, the line, they got the idea that maybe he's in the temple and they went looking and sure enough, that's where they found him. And then we see this curious scene. It, it really is, I think, quite striking when you see it described the way Luke describes it. First of all, here's Jesus, a 12-year-old boy, sitting, as it's described in the Scripture, in the midst of these teachers. The word midst in Greek, mesos, it literally means, its most common uh, translation is middle. So if you want to get a picture in your mind, you have all these scribes or Pharisees, very learned men. Temple teachers would have been the older, more experienced teachers in the culture. Men like Gamaliel, who Paul credits as the one who taught him everything he knew, studied under Gamaliel. These kind of men would have been in the temple teaching. They're all gathered around a 12-year-old boy. And though it says he was listening and asking them questions, I have the feeling that it was more like what you see later in the Gospels when he's meeting with the Pharisees, and he asks them questions, and they all go, uh... And then he answers it for them, or he prompts them into an answer, or then they try to test him, and he responds. So it's probably that kind of of a dialogue, not necessarily a friendly discussion, probably one that was putting these men on edge a little bit. Who's, who's this 12-year-old boy who thinks he knows so much, and yet they can't, they can't seem to frustrate him with their own questions? I'm sure he was probably showing them the truth of the Scripture as it applied to him or his ministry, showing them things they'd never seen before. And they're all amazed, as would be the case, of course, at how he could answer their questions, the kind of insight he shows. But this is really the same experience that we have ourselves. This is so much our own experience The Scriptures, remember, are the living word. We use that term even as we describe our little church. It means that the meaning of the book itself is only given through the Holy Spirit to those who are alive in Christ. To be alive in Christ is to have the mind of Christ, Paul calls it, the Holy Spirit in you. And that mind of Christ teaches you the meaning of the Scriptures. And you know the experience you've had when you've heard something you've never experienced before or you've read something and seen it a whole new way before. And it strikes you both at the same time as being amazing and at the same time as well, you wonder, how come I never saw that before? The words didn't change. Why is the meaning now so different? That's what we mean when we say it's living. It has that capacity to surprise you when you never expect it. That's what they're getting firsthand by the Word, capital W, by Christ, who is the Word. They're having that experience in His very presence. And then Mary and Joseph, now they come upon this scene, they see their son, And they have that experience that every parent who's ever lost a child in the supermarket or in a playground knows. That that kind of, that mixture of anger and relief, joy, frustration. I mean, you don't even know which one to to go with first, right? You, You want to hug him and then hit him. And that's the feeling they must have been having in this moment of relief and, and yet mixed in with these other emotions. Mary addresses him and, as the scripture records, and I'm sure she's astonished obviously at this scene of the son and all the teachers around him, but she's too overcome by just having found him to really dwell on that fact, I'm sure. She's not focused so much on the amazing situation he's in. She's more just confused about why he's there and why he wasn't with her. And she chides him. I mean, this is really a scolding. 
This is, this is Mary scolding God. But it's, his, it's her child. She's acting as any mother would. And she says, why did you treat us this way? And we've been looking everywhere for you. You can hear the words come out of your own mouth if you're a parent. And did Jesus sin? Because that's really what's being implied, maybe. Or if you're not careful in how you read the text, you might come away saying, well, yeah, it seems like he's at fault, right? It seems like he should have told them he was going to stay behind at the very least, right? There's, There's a feeling, if you're a parent, that you bring it into this moment and you say, I, I don't see how he can not be wrong of something here. Is this sin in Christ's mind, in his life? How do we resolve this? Well, consider his response for a moment. He says they should have known where he was in his father's house. Now remember, Christ is about to become a man under the Jewish law. And at the point in time when he becomes a man, at the age of 13, he's free to stand on his own. He's free to essentially be away from the family, to be a man of his own according to the Jewish law. So it seems, at least on one level, he's making a statement here that he's ready to leave his earthly parents' consent and control and return to his heavenly Father's control where they should have known he belonged in the first place because they knew who he was. They knew he was the Messiah. But I don't think that's the main gist of what he's saying. I think the main gist of what he's saying is a little more simple, a little more practical than that. Remember how they came to Jerusalem in the first place? To observe... Observe a feast, the feast of the Passover. If you know anything about Jewish tradition and the tradition of the Passover itself, you know that what they do essentially is they come for a special meal involving a sacrifice of a, of a special animal, of this perfect lamb. And that sacrifice takes place in the temple, in the temple grounds, the larger temple, in the grounds of the common court and in the surrounding area of the, of, of the temple structure itself. That's the last event. The high point of the feast is that sacrifice and the feast of the of the, the meat that's roasted, and then you're free to go. So it makes perfect sense to assume that they were all in the temple initially, parents, children, the whole group of them, participating in the Passover. Passover is done, and they leave. So, who left who? Christ was in the temple. They leave. They leave without Him. Parents, I ask you, if you put your child somewhere, and you leave without Him, whose fault is it? Two, three weeks ago when my sister got married, we had the rehearsal the night before in this church. And the the plan was we'd all be in the church doing the rehearsal. And then at the end of the rehearsal, we all go off to another house where we're going to have the dinner, the dinner that followed the rehearsal. And I had a family member who came in from Australia, all the way from Australia, a cousin, to be at my sister's wedding. Now, she's she's dependent on us, obviously. She's flown in and she has no other way to get around. We take her to the rehearsal dinner, or to the, the rehearsal, rather, Go through the whole rehearsal and then, okay, it's over. Oh, we got to get going. Let's everybody get in the cars and leave. Whew, we all go. We're all sitting around at the rehearsal dinner. About an hour goes by at the dinner and somebody says, where's, where's Pip? That's her name, Pip. Somebody realizes, oh, did anybody get Pip? She's still at the church. In fact, by this time they've closed up the church. She's standing at a gas station talking to the mechanic next door. Doesn't know who to call. Has no way to get anywhere. She's just waiting for someone to realize that she's missing. Is it Pip's fault that she was left behind? No. She was, on, she was dependent on someone else who brought her to take her. It was our fault for not thinking about the fact that no one had accounted for her. And when finally went back to get her, she had a very positive attitude about it. She got to meet a, a nice American mechanic, and she was okay, which was very gracious. But it would be the same thing as if we all got up and left Musa sitting here, and then a day later came back and got mad at him for, for the fact that we left him. That's what's happened here. Christ said, 
you should have known I was in my father's house. That's where you left me. The last time you saw me, we were all here. You leave, so what do I do? I start teaching the scribes. What else am I going to do? I'm in my father's house. I believe that's what's happened here. Christ is saying, you should have known where I was. I'm right where you left me. And that's exactly what we seem to do so often ourselves, right? As Christians, how often is it we drift away from Christ and then think that it's Him that left us? I think that's such a clear parallel. You know, in our lives, it's not that we come with Him to a place and leave Him physically speaking. It's more that we come into a walk with Him and then we get out of the habits of a good Christian walk. We get out of the habits of studying the Word, right? We get out of the habits of attending Bible studies or of our own devotional time in the Word. And then we, next step might be we make attendance at worship a bit irregular. Wherever it takes place, whatever day of the week, it tends to fit in now along with other things. And then if it doesn't fit in, well, it's expendable. We all do that. We only pray at meal times, or maybe with our children at bedtime. We don't have any independent time of prayer. And then finally, if we've let those things slide, if we've walked away from Christ, so to speak, in that respect, the next step is that the choices we make and the company we keep and the priorities we set in our lives, none of those things reflect Christian values anymore. Next thing you know, you look around and you're just like the world. I mean, you have a different spirit. You're a child of God. You know better. That's not changing. But what is changing is how you actually work through that walk. How you make use of what God's given you. Whether you're walking with Jesus in the sense of how these parents left Him behind or not. Whether you are observing what He has taught or whether you're letting sin rule your life. I mean, who knows why Mary and Joseph overlooked Jesus in the temple? There could have been a million reasons, right? A million reasons why as they left they were distracted. While their only focus was getting home, their only focus was getting into the caravan, they, they really weren't thinking about anything other than some mundane, daily aspect of life. The ceremony's over, time to get moving. I bet you they probably almost ran their camel into another family's caravan in the parking lot, trying to get out fast. Just like we all do, right? And perhaps they just weren't paying close attention to Jesus. They probably assumed He knows the routine. He'll just fall into line with everyone else. He's, he's, he understands what he's supposed to do, and I understand what I'm supposed to do, and we'll just sort of do our thing independently. Boy, if that ain't a message for today's Christian, I don't know what is. Because leaving Jesus behind at church is pretty much the anthem of the typical American Christian experience, right? Leaving Jesus in the church, and I'll catch up with him next weekend, is very much the experience of most Christians today. In fact, I tell you from my experience, and you know I have had, I've had opportunities to teach in other places and I've enjoyed those opportunities, but probably the thing I enjoy the most about it is I have been protected by those experiences from being too insulated in thinking that church is just the group I see on Sunday. I've come to really appreciate the fact that the body of Christ is a broader experience than what one particular church might provide on a given Sunday. That doesn't mean it's wrong to have one home church, obviously, but what I've learned from that broadening of my insight is that we're all really the same. As much as we think we're different, we're all really the same. We have the same basic problems that are endemic to our culture. A typical Christian experience is this, and I don't mean to pick on anybody because it's not, I don't have any body in mind. I, I, I see this so often, I don't have to pick one person. I can even pick myself for that matter. The typical Christian today feels pretty good about themselves if they spend the required 60 minutes one day a week in church, and then the rest of the week, they don't give another minute's thought to the fact that they have a Christian walk until... Saturday night, Sunday morning rolls around and they have to make that weekly decision of whether they're going to go to church or not. That's the typical Christian experience. They're not studying His Word, by and large. 
They're not in any kind of extended personal prayer time on a regular basis, pretty much. They're not in service to the body of Christ. I mean, never mind the fact that they're not participating passively. They'll never go to that next step and actually be an active instigator of service in the fellowship in, in, in any context. And then last step in that, of course, is they fall away altogether from fellowship with believers. They, they pretty much just live to their own. Now, that's the worst case example. The problem is that worst case example typifies the American church. I've even seen some things when I was in Kenya that, that follow along in that pattern. I'm sure, Musa, you could confirm that there are people who live that life on your side of the world as much as there are on ours. It's unfortunate, but it's true. And then, then tragedy strikes, right? Then something goes wrong. Lose your, you know, the typical ones. Lose your job, a death in the family, someone's sick, so, you know, whatever. And then we run back to Jesus in the church and we're mad at him. We're mad at him for where were you? Why didn't you take care of this problem? Why aren't you there when I need you now? That is so much our experience that what Mary and Joseph are doing for me is a pure picture of the church as it exists today. But Jesus is right where you left him. He didn't go away. He's right where you left him. Not in this building, obviously, but in his word. He meets you in his word. And he meets you in prayer. And he meets you in your time of service to others or in fellowship. Anytime his body is gathered in his name, he's there. But I think it's pointed the fact that he says when two or more are gathered, he could have just said, anytime you think of me, I will be there. Anytime you read my word, I will be there. He doesn't say that. He says where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there. That's not to imply that he's gone when you're alone. It's simply to mean that his joy and his desire is that we would meet him in groups. That we, we would meet him gathered as, as his body and not live to ourselves. If you wait to seek him only when you think you need him, as Mary and Joseph apparently did, then you may have walked so far away as they did that it will take you some time to get back. That it will take you some time to, to remember those habits that you left so easily. It will take you time, as it did for them, to make a trip back to where you are truly walking with Him. And that trip back won't be easy. And there will be a lot of doubts and a lot of, a lot of griping and complaining all the way back, which I have to imagine was going on on that trip from Mary and Joseph. It's so much easier if you don't stray far. It's so much easier if you're with Him Consistently, if you're engaged in Bible study, if you have extended prayer time, and so on. Because our hearts stray so easily, though, without regular focused attention on Christ in these ways, if we're left to ourselves, I'm telling you, our sinful nature and our desires, they kick right back in. They take over again. They're never far away. And your fears and your doubts come with them. As we close today, remember, Jesus is always in His Father's house. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And He's always waiting for you, and He won't go away. And He sits there, ready to have men and women gather around Him for teaching and for His support and His care. But we leave Him, not Him leaving us. And I hope that as we leave the Scripture today, that your memory for the week to come is in the decisions you make and the way you spend your time. Am I walking away from Him again? Is it, is it yet another week that Sunday has to roll around before He's on my mind? Or am I finding ways to engage with him in the meantime. That's my prayer for you. Go with me as we end in prayer, giving him thanks again and praying for a blessing on our week to come. Father, how convicting your word can be, and yet how necessary it is, Father, that we give it that opportunity to pierce us all the way to our heart, Father. Not that our everyday experience in the Word must always be one of conviction. That is natural, Father, but it is not the only experience. We know there will be times as well of joy, of rejoicing, of being thankful, Father, for 
all the blessings that come from our experience knowing You. But Father, if our experience with You is nothing but joy and blessing, nothing but happy feelings, then we will never be better. We will never have that catalyst, Father, to change us, to make us desire to be better. And so the conviction of the Word, Father, is a necessary part of being Your children. For those whom You love, You reprove. For we know we are Your children because You discipline us. We thank You for that discipline, Father, however it may come. Let it have its good work in us this week. Let it give us reason, Father, to devote more of our time and our thoughts to You, to not stray so far, to be ready to give time to the study of the Word wherever the opportunity comes, to be ready, Father, to give priority to prayer where other things may take our time so easily we will put them aside in place of time spent with You. We pray, Father, for a desire, genuine desire to gather with fellow believers, whether here or elsewhere, Father, it makes no difference, but with the gathering as, we give, as You give opportunity, wherever it may be, let it be something we yearn for, Father. And as well, Lord, let us use our gifts in service to You, however You call us. In all these things, Father, let us grow up with the mind of Christ to look and live as You did, to look to the world as one who believes in You and follows Your commands and to live it personally, Father, so that it is not merely an act, but it is truly in our hearts to be like You. Lord, I ask for a blessing on each man and woman in here that this week the Word, Father, would come to mind often that it would grow them in likeness to Your Son. Father, I pray that that blessing would include a great joy from knowing they walk with You. Father, we pray for protection on those who travel. We pray for the needs that this fellowship might have that have gone unspoken, that they would be met as well. We pray, Father, that we would return next week according to Your will, that Your plan for this small gathering would be known and would be clear, that we would all feel it and understand it, Father. That we would honor it by our obedience in whatever way You direct. In all these things, Father, I give You great thanks and praise and the joy that comes from knowing Your Son, in whose name I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.